time she began at last to show. Her condition was never to fully ripen into birth, however. In mid-October, Carver returned to Hokitika, confronted Anna, and beat her severely. The unborn child did not survive this encounter. Anna's later intimation when she described the scene to Edgar Clinch was that Carver had killed the child in cold blood. Moody paused in his chronology to dwell upon this unhappy event. Although the child's death had been referenced in passing several times that evening, it did not seem as though any man present was entirely clear about how this fatal altercation had come about. It was for reasons of natural delicacy that Moody had not pressed the man for further information, but he wondered now how Anna's relations with Carver fitted into the scheme of the story at large. He wondered whether the child's death had truly been intended, and if so, what might have motivated Francis Carver to commit such a heinous act. None of the twelve men currently present could answer this question with any kind of objective certainty, of course. They could only describe what they had been told to be true. How opaque the minds of absent men and women, and how elusive motivation! For Francis Carver might have killed his child in cold repudiation, as an act of loathing, as a brutal prophylactic, or quite by accident. Short of asking the man directly, there was no way to tell. Even Anna Wetherill, who had named Carver as the murderer, might have had any number of reasons to lie. Having reflected upon this, Moody continued. Terao Taufari, encountering Carver by chance on the morning of the 14th of January, had remembered the offer that the man had made him the previous year. For a price of two shillings, Taufari offered to tell Carver where Crosby Wells was living— the men shook hands, Taufare gave directions, and Carver made for the Arahura Valley that very same day, a night that was to be Wells' last. Perhaps Carver had witnessed the hermit's death, or perhaps he had left moments before its occurrence, but in either case he had arrived at the cottage with a file of laudanum, traces of which were later discovered in Crosby Wells' stomach during his post-mortem. Following their encounter, Carver returned to Hokitika, manned the Godspeed, and weighed anchor, leaving well before the dawn. From Hokitika, Carver had travelled not to Canton, as Balfour had speculated he might, but to Dunedin, a fact that Moody himself could corroborate, for it was at Port Chalmers that Moody had boarded the very same craft twelve days later. Alistair Lauderback, arriving at Wells Cottage soon after Carver departed it, found the hermit dead at his kitchen table, his head resting on his arms. He journeyed on to Hokitika, where he was interviewed by the editor, Benjamin Lerventhal, who was intending to run a political special in Monday's edition of The Times. Lerventhal, hearing from Lauderback that Crosby Wells was dead, deduced that Wells' property would presently be put up for sale. The next morning, he informed the hotelier, Edgar Clinch, of this probable eventuation, knowing that Clinch was looking to make an investment in land. Clinch immediately took his deposit to the bank, where the banker Charlie Frost facilitated his purchase of the dead man's estate. Clinch then commissioned Harold Nielsen to clear the dead man's cottage and dispose of his effects. Nielsen did so, and discovered to his astonishment a perfect fortune hidden in every conceivable hiding place around the dwelling's single room— the ore, once it had been purified by the bank, was valued at a little over four thousand pounds. Nielsen was paid his ten percent commission, leaving a little over thirty-six hundred, 
Out of this had been paid sundry death taxes, fees and incidentals, which included a present of thirty pounds to the banker Charlie Frost. The remainder, still a certifiable fortune, was currently being held in a scrow at the Reserve Bank. Clinch was not likely to see a single penny of the sum, however. Lydia Wells, arriving mysteriously from Dunedin some days after the hermit's funeral, had since appealed to revoke Clinch's purchase on the grounds that his property and effects legally belonged to her. Of course, the gold found in Crosby's cottage did not represent the sum total of the fortune at play. Arqui had only stripped four out of Anna's five gowns. The final portion, sewn into the folds of Anna's orange whoring dress, had been discovered by Anna Wetherill herself but two weeks ago, when she woke up in jail following the crisis of her overdose. She had assumed, reasonably enough, that the gold had only just been planted on her person, for she had no memory of what had happened to her in the twelve hours prior to her arrest, and was in a state of considerable confusion. She entreated Gascoigne's help, and together they excavated the metal from the orange gown and hid it in a flour sack under Gascoigne's bed. When Anna then returned to the Gridiron Hotel, wearing the black dress that had belonged to Gascoigne's late wife, Edgar Clinch's old suspicions were renewed. He felt sure, rightly this time, that Anna's change of dress had something to do with the hidden gold, and he noted with bitterness that her orange whoring gown had now disappeared. He resented very much that she claimed to be unable to pay her debts to him when he knew full well that she was flush with colour. Letting his resentment get the better of him, he spoke to her cruelly and gave her notice to leave. But Clinch's threat did not have the consequence he was expecting. Anna Wetherill had since paid her debt to him in full, but not with the gold in her gowns and not with her legal earnings either. The debt had been paid out that very afternoon by way of a six-pound loan from Crosby's widow Lydia Wells. Her debt to Mannering, which by the magnate's reckoning was well over a hundred pounds, would be more than covered by the gold she and Gascoigne had excavated from the orange gown. Anna had since quit the gridiron for good. She had been invited henceforth to take her lodging with Lydia Wells at the Wayfarer's Fortune, where she would no longer call herself a whore. Did Lydia Wells know that Carver's missing shipping crate had ended up in Hokitika, and that the dresses had been purchased by Anna, and that the fortune at Crosby Wells Cottage was one and the same as the fortune with which Carver had blackmailed the politician Lord of Act some ten months ago? Such a question depended entirely upon Anna. How much did Anna know about her own involvement in this very circular affair? And how much, for that matter, was she willing to reveal to Lydia Wells? It was very possible that Anna did not know the dresses had once been Lydia's. In this case, Mrs. Wells would remain ignorant of this fact also, for Anna was still wearing the black dress that had once belonged to Gascoigne's late wife, and she had vowed to remain in mourning for some time. Of course, Moody thought, Anna would only need to have opened the wardrobe in her room for the widow to have recognised the dresses, but given that the gowns were currently lined with leaden makeweights, placed there as a decoy by the goldsmith Quee, Mrs. Wells might not have realised, at first glance or first touch, that the original fortune had been replaced by a worthless replica. Clinch had been fooled to this effect already, Moody wondered whether it was upon this false surety that the widow had paid Anna's debt that afternoon. If Anna